0: You hear so many people ask their GP for a referral to a specialist and the GP sort of fobs them off. I think people have to stand their ground.
1: That's Edith Brown from the UK, speaking about the journey to diagnosis. I'm Louie. Welcome to Journeys Through Pulmonary Fibrosis, a podcast by Boehringer Ingelheim. On the last episode, we met some extraordinary people from the pulmonary fibrosis community, and learned about the first signs and symptoms of this rare lung condition. Today, they will take us along the path to diagnosis. It can be difficult to stand your ground while experiencing serious symptoms, but why is this? Pulmonologist Leticia Kawano Dorado explains.
2: The usual primary care doctor won't see many patients with pulmonary fibrosis since it's a rare disease. So, it's not all unexpected that the diagnosis goes overlooked for a while.
1: Also, symptoms might often be associated with other diseases, as rheumatologist Anna Maria Hoffman-Vold elaborates.
3: If a patient comes with these symptoms to an example, a general practitioner, most likely they will think of um, more prevalent diseases such as cardiovascular diseases or asthma or COPD. So this is also a danger for misinterpretation.
1: But why exactly is this a danger?
3: Common fibrosis has really a large and major impact on patients. Um, it impacts, for example, daily life. Um, but this is then often depending on the extent of pulmonary fibrosis. Some patients may have very mild and subtle changes, which hardly impacts the life. But once it is an established and severe and also progressive pulmonary fibrosis, the impact gets major with uh, huge limitations in daily life, quality of life, and also long term
1: outcome. In many cases, it's those subtle changes that are challenging because they might also be overlooked by those affected. Back to Edith.
0: I'd had breathing problems for 18 months beforehand. I was still thinking this was something that would just go away. And then I started realising, no, I was in for the long haul, that this wasn't going to go away. And I had to, you know, learn to live with it and make adaptations
1: Another challenge in spotting pulmonary fibrosis is that it can develop within an underlying disease, so people might not focus on it at first. But what's an underlying disease? Let's hear from rheumatologist Hoffman-Vold.
3: Underlying disease really means that pulmonary fibrosis is not a single disease, but that these patients also have another diagnosis such as um, rheumatic disease. So these patients then have, in example, systemic sclerosis or rheumatoid arthritis with all the other organ manifestations, but develop pulmonary fibrosis.
1: And if several symptoms occur simultaneously, connecting the dots is even more challenging. Edith, who lives with the underlying disease systemic sclerosis, remembers the early phase of her journey.
0: The problem with early um, systemic sclerosis is the, the the symptoms are so varied and they don't seem to connect together. So it doesn't seem very logical to a non medical person like myself that that um, problems with rhinos, problems with swallowing, problems with reflux, and difficulty breathing, they don't seem to go together. It's really important that GPs know those, those symptoms because quite often GPs don't put those things together.
1: So general practitioners need to recognize pulmonary fibrosis symptoms and quickly refer to a specialist to ensure a fast diagnosis. Pulmonologist Kawano Dorado sums it up.
2: There are two big hurdles here. One is to raise awareness on pulmonary fibrosis among primary care specialists, and the other is related to specialists like rheumatologists and cardiologists that will be seeing these patients as the symptoms are gonna be mistaken by diseases that they manage. The other big hurdle is the availability of the specialist to see that patient. Sometimes, even with proper referral, that consultation may take many months, even one year to happen.
1: Edith was lucky. Her path to diagnosis was fast.
0: It was a very quick, very swift diagnosis and a very quick referral. And I don't think that's typical. And I've heard some really sad tales of people going for years and years, going repeatedly going back to their GP and not with, with, with Raynaud's and other problems and not being referred on.
1: For Melissa from Canada, it was a long road to diagnosis.
4: So I saw my- regular doctor quite a few times. Uh, he had referred me to a respiratory therapist. So I had some breathing tests done at various points. Um, I also saw an allergist um, who said, you know, this is not part of, this is not the the problem. And then eventually I saw my local respirologist and, and from there was referred to a respirologist that specializes in Um, pulmonary fibrosis. It was about two years from when I first had symptoms of that little bit of cough, little bit of shortness of breath, until I actually finally officially got a diagnosis of um, chronic hypersensitivity pneumonitis.
1: We've learned so far that spotting the symptoms of pulmonary fibrosis and taking the right next steps, like the referral to a specialist, is crucial. But how exactly do doctors screen and identify pulmonary fibrosis, A common starting point is an HRCT scan. HRCT stands for High Resolution Computed Tomography and helps to analyze and detect changes to the lung tissue.
3: The diagnosis of pulmonary fibrosis is based on HRCT, which is a radiological imaging method. And this is to date the golden standard. Lung function test is also always conducted at the time point of diagnosis to be able to stage the severity of pulmonary fibrosis. And then in the next step, HRCT and lung function test is used to monitor pulmonary fibrosis over time. Rheumatologists usually look for pulmonary fibrosis in diseases such as systemic sclerosis. There we have strong recommendations and everyone is aware of um, the high uh, prevalence of pulmonary fibrosis. In rheumatoid arthritis, it is very different as it is a prevalent disease and um, pulmonary fibrosis is not as common. So here, not all patients are actually looked for pulmonary fibrosis.
1: Reaching a thorough diagnosis often involves multiple appointments and conversations. Pulmonologist Kawano Dorado adds.
2: The first appointment with a patient with pulmonary fibrosis tend to be a conversation and a review of the previous exams available. I am mostly focused on trying to identify causes for the pulmonary fibrosis and to ascertain the disease extent and its clinical and functional impacts. As searching for causes of the pulmonary fibrosis, I usually engage in a conversation with the patient, starting from the simple side where I am all usually talking about smoking history, medical history, medications, and then moving forward to occupational and leisure activities, as well as the house characteristics. It is curious to note that not infrequently, it's not in the first appointment that we identify potentially significant exposures like pet birds or a home library filled with old moldy books. Sometimes it takes time for these pieces of information to arise, sometimes it only arises when someone else from the patient family comes to the appointment. During the physical examination, while I'm looking for signs of a systemic disease like autoimmune disease, I engage in a conversation with the patient asking about systemic symptoms such as joint pain, renal phenomenon, etc. I finally try to understand the actual impact of the disease in the patient's life, asking about their limitation for daily activities and the quality of life perspective. Most of the time, I have narrowed my diagnostic hypothesis on the causes of the, that patient's pulmonary fibrosis, and I am also able to understand the impact of the disease in the patient's life.
1: Ron Fluitt from the UK, living with idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, and his wife, Maxine, have gone through the path to diagnosis together.
5: During the process of being diagnosed, it was quite, it was quite scary because at the time, I, told I, I was told I had palmy fibrosis, and I had lots of tests, like breathing tests, but I didn't know what the FVCs were, what the DLCOs were. I didn't really understand what they were testing for. And I sort of was quite, you know, I'm fit. There's nothing wrong with me until I got that final diagnosis. That's when, you know, I began to realise how seriously ill I was. When Ron mentions
1: FVC and DLCO, He's referring to specific parameters that are an essential part of lung function tests. However, these unfamiliar tests can often leave people with lots of questions.
5: The thing I would say, and I wish I'd ask, is what are, what, what test, what are you looking for? What is the FVC? What is this? What does this mean? When I'm blown, when I'm going into these into these cubes and breathe, and doing these breathing tests, what are they actually for?
1: Let's hear again from the pulmonologist's perspective.
2: When you do a pulmonary function test, you're basically measuring uh, the capacity of the lung to breathe. And we measure that by measuring the amount of air that goes in and out. So the first vital capacity is measured by asking you the patient to take a deep breath and then blow it all out all, everything out, and by measuring this amount of uh, air that was inside your lung, I have an idea of how good or bad is the lung disease.
1: Reflecting on his experience, Ron advocates for taking an active role by preparing questions.
5: The first appointment, I really can't say how you can prepare for it. It was only after diagnosis that I realised that I had to prepare questions. But up to diagnosis, no, I didn't prepare any questions whatsoever. I think one of the questions I would like to have asked was, you're testing my lungs, what is my lung capacity? I'd like to know something simple. Is my lung capacity 40%, 50%, 60%? I'd wished that I'd ask the capacity of my lungs, You know, because being a triathlete at that particular time... I was diagnosed and then, silly Ron, done, a, done a, tri, a triathlon two days later. But I'd wish they told me my lung capacity was at 66%, at 60%, because I don't think I would have done that triathlon because I didn't know whether I was doing any damage to my body. So I think asking you what your lung capacity is at that point, that's very important.
1: For Ron's wife, Maxine, the path to diagnosis was an emotional roller coaster.
6: When the, the consultant that we saw f- just for the chest side of it said, there's some fibrosing here, I can't deal with it, you know, I need to refer you, I was like, oh, my goodness, this this is more than, Ron was like, oh, no, that's okay, that doesn't seem that bad, does it? And I'm like, no, you really didn't get that this is something more than what you're thinking it will be. When I didn't know what the diagnosis was going to be, and we were referred, all sorts of things were going through my head, I was imagining from the worst to telling myself not to be silly, it's probably something they can sort out. But it's something that constantly nags at you, because we all know they don't refer you unless it's something a little bit more serious. Um so, yeah, you go through all the scenarios in your head that you think it could be um, until they actually tell you.
1: Melissa also has mixed emotions when reflecting on her diagnosis journey.
4: During the actual diagnosis part, so those last couple of weeks when I was doing the tests to find out what it actually was, um, I was really just in such a crisis mode that it's hard to really even remember exactly what I was feeling there was just it was a relief to have these tests done but it also can be pretty exhausting going through these tests and at the time I was not on oxygen but absolutely needed to be on oxygen some of these tests are are pretty challenging tests to go through especially when you're feeling super short of breath it did feel like jumping through hoops because I was so sick at the time that I was diagnosed, it was very, uh, it was was a lot physically to go through all these tests. But I'm also the kind of person that I just, I like to have answers. You want to know exactly what's going on. So it, it helped to look at a lot of these tests as a means to an end.
1: It's only natural that within such a state of uncertainty, people seek out detailed information. Liam Galvin, a patient advocate from Ireland who has lost his wife to pulmonary fibrosis, explains the issue.
7: The diagnosis of IPF or other forms of pulmonary fibrosis um, is really uh, subject to an intense discussion and sort of balancing of the, the information from tests. So there can be quite a, a long period even before uh, to exact diagnosis. One of the main problems, patients have uh, in most countries is the fact that there's no association or s- trusted resource that they can use specifically to look up for pulmonary fibrosis. If you actually look at um, the internet, there are many sites that um, use out-of-date de- out information, might use uh, their site as a possibility of um, offering uh, cures or treatments that aren't validated by the medical profession. So there is a lot of misinformation there. There's a lot of terrifying information because obviously a lot of patients live um, quite long lives with diagnosis of pulmonary fibrosis. But overall, um, there can be cases where a very severe illness can have lead to a very short life after diagnosis. So, it's good to have the balance from a trusted resource.
1: On the path to diagnosis, there might also come a time when a doctor has identified pulmonary fibrosis but can't confirm the cause or underlying disease yet. As Liam points out, this would be a good time to think about joining a support group.
7: Anyone who's sort of been told by a community pulmonologist that that they have some serious disease, that they have some form of pulmonary fibrosis but they're not yet able to specifically give them a diagnosis. I think certainly during that period your best bet would be to join your local support group.
1: And this also involves family and loved ones.
7: It's very important that carers are involved um, and and that they can get the experience of talking to other carers who've gone through the disease. I would see the support groups are there to back up the doctor to sort of say to patients and and carers that this is what they haven't explained to you. This is what might happen to you. And
1: it's important to Liam to point out that this must not be exclusively negative.
7: Life with IPF or other forms of pulmonary fibrosis can be adjusted so that you can still enjoy some things. You might not be able to enjoy all things, but you can still have a life, a quality of life.
1: For maintaining quality of life for as long as possible, An early diagnosis is imperative. So if you or a loved one are walking the path to diagnosis, Edith, Melissa and Liam have an important message.
0: I think perhaps it's important to get beyond the general practitioner, to get beyond the family doctor. Um, you You hear a lot of people talking that the family doctor was actually treating them for years and not referring them on to a rheumatologist.
4: Yeah, I think the advice that I would give to someone that's going through the diagnosis process is one to advocate for yourself. Um, if you know something is wrong, then say, tell your doctor and be persistent about it. I think a lot of times it's um, easy to dismiss these sort of general symptoms and people often know when there's something wrong with them. You need a little bit of patience because you got to have you got to go through the different diagnoses that it could potentially be.
7: If you're going to the doctor with cough, tiredness, and breathlessness, nine times out of 10, nine, 99 times out of 100, it will turn out to be a common uh, respiratory disease uh, complaint like uh, a chest infection. But it's that one percent who need to sort of really say. If they've been going up to the doctor for three months, been getting repeated antibiotics and still feel no better, they should really say to their doctor, can you refer me, please?
1: Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Journeys Through Pulmonary Fibrosis podcast. Listen out for our next episode, when we'll be joined by our courageous guests again to explore the moment of diagnosis. If you enjoyed this episode, then subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. There, you will also find the first episode if you've missed it. If you have any questions, please reach out to hello at bohringer ingleheimcom